My dear brethren, it is always a great privilege and heavy responsibility to address the priesthood of the Church. Possibly this is the largest gathering of priesthood in the history of the world. I should like to speak to you young men about how blessed you are to hold the Aaronic priesthood, which is known also as the lesser priesthood. But the word lesser, however, does not in any way take away from its importance. There is nothing small about it, especially when I see how big some of you young men are. I'm sure you remember how excited you were the first time you passed the sacrament. As you, Aaronic priesthood holders, assist in preparing, blessing, and administering and passing the sacrament, you help all members who partake thereof to recommit themselves to the Lord and to renew their faith in the Savior's atoning sacrifice. Each person who takes the sacrament is reminded to take upon themselves the name of the Son and always remember Him and keep His commandments and seek to have His Spirit to be with them. I hope that you will value the priesthood you hold and always honor your priesthood duties. I recently read the account of some deacons who got a little careless in their attitudes toward passing the sacrament. They began to think of it as a chore, something that no one else wanted to do. So they often came in late, and sometimes they didn't dress appropriately. One Sunday, their priesthood advisor told them, You don't have to worry about the sacrament today. It's been taken care of. They were, of course, surprised to hear this. But as usual, they were late for the sacrament meeting. They slipped in casually during the opening hymn and sat in the congregation. That's when they noticed who was sitting on the deacon's bench, their advisor and the high priest of the Lord, which included men who had served as bishops and stake president. They were all dressed in dark suits with white shirts and ties. But more than that, their bearing was one of total reverence as they took the sacrament trays from row to row. Something was deeper and more significant about the sacrament that day. Those deacons who had become so perfunctory in their duties learned by example that passing the sacrament was a sacred trust and one of the greatest of honors. They began to realize that the priesthood is, as the, as the Apostle Peter called it, a royal priesthood. Generally, the Aaronic priesthood, under the direction of the bishopric, have the responsibility to administer and pass a sacrament. But in our own home ward here in Salt Lake City, we have a good number of faithful older members, but few Aaronic priesthood age. Over the years, I have watched these high priests and elders, men of faith and great accomplishments, humbly and reverently pass the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. For a while, this group of priesthood holders included a senior federal judge, a candidate for the office of governor of the state of Utah, and other prominent men of stature. They were honored and obviously felt privileged to perform this sacred priesthood duty. 
The Aaronic priesthood is a great gift of spiritual power that the Lord conferred upon Aaron and his sons, and it holds the key of the ministering of angels and the preparatory gospel, and also includes the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. I would like to say a word about the ministering of angels. In ancient and modern times, angels have appeared, given instruction, warnings, and direction which have benefited the people they visited. We do not consciously realize the extent to which ministering angels affect our lives. President Joseph F. Smith said, quote, In like manner, our fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters and friends, who have passed away from this earth, having been faithful and worthy to enjoy these rights and privileges, may have a mission given to them to visit their relatives and friends upon the earth again, bringing them from the, present, from the divine present messages of love, of warning or reproof and instruction to those whom they had learned to love in the flesh. Many of us feel that we have had this experience. Their ministry has been and is an important part of the gospel. Angels ministered to Joseph Smith as he reestablished the gospel in its fullness. Alma the Younger had a personal experience with the ministering of angels. As a young man, he was numbered among the unbelievers and led many people to do after the manner of his iniquities. One day, while he was going about to destroy the Church of God, in company with the sons of Mosiah, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him, and he descended, as it were, in a cloud, and he spake, as it were, with a voice of thunder, which caused the earth to shake. The angel then cried out, Alma, arise and stand forth, for why persecutest thou the Church of God? Alma was so overcome by this experience that he fainted and had to be carried to his father. Only after his father and others had fasted and prayed for two days was Alma restored to full health and strength. He then stood up and declared, I have repented of my sins and have been redeemed of the Lord. Behold, I am born of the Spirit. Close quote. Alma went on to become one of the greatest missionaries in the Book of Mormon. Yet in his many years of mission and service, he never spoke of the angel's visit. Instead, he chose to testify that the truth had been made known to him by the Spirit of God. To be instructed by an angel would be a great blessing. However, as Alma taught us, in his final and lasting conversion came only after he had fasted and prayed for many days. His complete conversion came from the Holy Ghost, which is available to all of us if we are worthy. Miraculous events have not always been a source of conversion. For example, when Laman and Lemuel physically mistreated their younger brothers, an angel appeared and warned them to stop. The angel also reassured all of the brothers that Laban would be delivered into their hands. 
Nephi, on the one hand, believed and claimed the blast plates from Laban, Laman and Lamel, on the other hand, did not believe, nor did they change their behavior as a result of the angelic visit. As Nephi reminded them, How is it that you have forgotten that you have seen an angel of the Lord? You young men are building your testimonies. These are strengthened by the spiritual confirmation that comes through the Holy Ghost in the ordinary experiences of life. While some great manifestation could strengthen your testimony, it won't likely happen that way. While holding the priesthood brings great blessings, the priesthood also carries with it great obligations. All priesthood leaders need to magnify their callings, acting in the Lord's name to the extent His office and calling permits. We magnify our callings by following the direction of our quorum president, the bishop, and our quorum advisor. It means preparing, administering, and passing the sacrament as we are asked to do so. It also means performing other responsibilities of the Aaronic priesthood, such as cleaning our church meeting houses, setting up chairs for state conference and other church meetings, and performing other duties as assigned. Holders of the Aaronic or preparatory priesthood are obligated to qualify for the higher priesthood and to receive training for greater responsibilities in church serving. Service. Holding the Aaronic priesthood carries with it the obligation of being a good example with clean thoughts and proper behavior. We acquire these attributes as we carry out our priesthood duties. You will be associated in your quorum and other activities with young men who have the same standards that you have. You can strengthen each other. You can study the scriptures and learn the gospel principles to help you prepare for a mission. You can learn to pray and recognize answers. The Doctrine and Covenants describes different kinds of authority relating to the Aaronic priesthood. First, the ordination of the priesthood gives authority to perform some ordinances and possess the power of the Aaronic priesthood. The bishopric is the presence of the Aaronic priesthood in the ward. Second, within this priesthood are different offices, each with different responsibilities and privileges. As a deacon, you are to watch over the Church as a standing minister. As a teacher, in addition to watching over the Church, you are to be with and strengthen them. As a priest, to preach, teach, expound, exhort, and baptize and administer the sacrament and visit the house of each member. Your bishop, who holds the office of high priest, is also the president of the priesthood, priest quorum and directs the work of that quorum. As you progress from one of these offices of the Aaronic priesthood to the next, you will retain the authority of the previous one. For example, those of you who are priests still have the authority to do everything you did as deacons and teachers. Indeed, even when you are ultimately ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood, you will still keep and act in the offices of the Aaronic priesthood. 
The late elderly Grand Richards, who was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve for many years, understood this principle well. He often used to say, I'm just a grown-up deacon. As I have noted, teaching is one of the important duties of the Aaronic priesthood. The opportunity for you young teenagers to teach often comes as you serve as a home teaching companion to your father or some other Melchizedek priesthood holder. Looking after the needs in a temporal and spiritual way is a very significant part of watching over the Church. The Prophet Joseph Smith gave high priority to home teaching. Brother Ezra Oakley was the Prophet's home teacher. And whenever Brother Oakley went home teaching to the Smith home, quote, the Prophet called his family together and gave his own chair to Oakley, telling his family to listen carefully to Brother Oakley. You young men of the Aaronic Priesthood need to have the Spirit with you in your personal lives, as well as in home teaching, preparing or passing the sacrament, or other priesthood activities. You will need to avoid some stumbling blocks. One of the biggest of these is addiction. I counsel all of you, brethren, to avoid every kind of addiction. At this time, Satan and his followers are enslaving some of our choicest young people through addiction to alcohol, all kinds of drugs, pornography, tobacco, gambling, and other compulsive disorders. Some people seem to be born with a weakness for these substances so that only a single experimentation will result in uncontrollable addiction. Some addictions are actually mind-altering and create a craving that overpowers reason and judgment. These addictions destroy not only the lives of those who do not resist them, but also their parents, spouses, and children. As the prophet Jeremiah lamented, the kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy should have entered into the gates. The Lord in His wisdom was warned us that substances are not good for us should be totally avoided. We have been warned not to take the first drink, smoke the first cigarette, or try the first drug. Curiosity and peer pressure are selfish reasons to dabble with addictive substances. You should stop and consider the full consequences, not just to ourselves and our futures, but also to our loved ones. These consequences are physical, but they also risk the loss of the spirit and cause us to fall prey to Satan. I testify of the refining, spiritual, comforting, strengthening, and resisting influence the priesthood has had in my life. I have lived under its spiritual influence all my life, in my grandfather's home, in my father's home, and then in my own home. It is humbly to use this transcending power and authority of the priesthood to empower others and to heal and bless. May we live worthy of holding the priesthood authority to act in the name of God. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
the first words Jesus spoke in his majestic Sermon on the Mount were to the troubled, the discouraged, and downhearted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whether you are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or among the tens of thousands listening this morning who are not of our faith, I speak to those who are facing personal trials and family struggles, those who endure conflicts fought in the lonely foxholes of the heart, those trying to hold back floodwaters of despair that sometimes wash over us like a tsunami of the soul. I wish to speak particularly to you who feel your lives are broken, seemingly beyond repair. To all such, I offer the surest and sweetest remedy that I know. It is found in the clarion call the Savior of the world himself gave. He said it in the beginning of his ministry, and he said it in the end. He said it to believers, and he said it to those who were not so sure. He said to everyone, whatever their personal problems might be, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. In this promise, that introductory phrase, Come unto me, is crucial. It is the key to the peace and rest we seek. Indeed, when the resurrected Savior gave his sermon at the temple to the Nephites in the New World, he began, Blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Andrew and John first heard Christ speak, they were so moved they followed him as he walked away from the crowd. Sensing he was being pursued, Jesus turned and asked the two men, What seek ye? They answered, Where dwellest thou? And Christ said, Come and see. The next day he found another disciple, Philip, and said to him, Follow me. Just a short time later, he formally called Peter and others of the new apostles with the same spirit of invitation. Come, follow me, he said. It seems clear that the essence of our duty and the fundamental requirement of our mortal life is captured in these brief phrases from any number of scenes in the Savior's mortal ministry. He is saying to us, trust me. Learn of me. Do what I do. Then, when you walk where I am going, he says, we can talk about where you're going and the problems you face and the troubles you have. If you will follow me, I will lead you out of darkness, he promises. I will give you answers to your prayers. I will give you rest to your souls. My beloved friends, I know of no other way for us to succeed or to be safe amid life's many pitfalls and problems. I know of no other way for us to carry our burdens or find what Jacob in the Book of Mormon called that happiness which is prepared for the saints. So how does one come unto Christ in response to this constant invitation? The scriptures give scores of examples and avenues. 
you are well acquainted with the most basic ones. The easiest and the earliest come simply with the desire of our heart, the most basic form of faith that we know. If ye can no more than desire to believe, Alma says, exercising just a particle of faith, giving even a small place for the promises of God to find a home, that is enough to begin. Just believing, just having a molecule of faith, simply hoping for things which are not seen in our lives, but which are nevertheless truly there to be bestowed. That simple step, when focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, has ever been and always will be the first principle of his eternal gospel, the first step out of despair. Second, we must change anything we can change that may be part of the problem. In short, we must repent, perhaps the most hopeful and encouraging word in the Christian vocabulary. We thank our Father in heaven we are allowed to change. We thank Jesus we can change. And ultimately, we do so only with their divine assistance. Certainly, not everything we struggle with is a result of our actions. Often, it's the result of the actions of others or just the mortal events of life. But anything we can change, we should change, and we must forgive the rest. In this way, our access to the Savior's atonement becomes as unimpeded as we, with our imperfections, can make it. He will take it from there. Third, in as many ways as possible, we try to take upon us his identity, and we begin by taking upon us his name. That name is formally bestowed by covenant in the saving ordinances of the gospel. These start with baptism and conclude with temple covenants, with many others, such as partaking of the sacrament, laced throughout our lives as additional blessings and reminders. Teaching the people of his day the message we give this morning, Nephi said, follow the Son with full purpose of heart, with real intent. Take upon you the name of Christ. Do the things which I have told you I have seen that your Lord and your Redeemer will do. Following these most basic teachings, a splendor of connections to Christ open up to us in multitudinous ways. Prayer and fasting and meditation upon his purposes, savoring the scriptures, giving service to others, succoring the weak, lifting up the hands which hang down, strengthening the feeble knees. Above all else, loving, loving with the pure love of Christ. That gift, please note, that never faileth. That gift that beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. Soon, with that kind of love, we realize that our days hold scores of thoroughfares leading to the Master, and that every time we reach out, however feebly for Him, we discover He's been anxiously trying to reach us. So we step, we strive, we seek, and we never yield. 
My desire today is for all of us, not just those who are poor in spirit, but all of us, to have more straightforward personal experience with the Savior's example. Sometimes we seek heaven too obliquely, focusing on programs or history or the experience of others. These are important, but not as important as personal experience. True discipleship and the strength that comes from experiencing firsthand the majesty of His touch. Are you battling a demon of addiction, tobacco, or drugs, or gambling, or the pernicious contemporary plague of pornography? Is your marriage in trouble or your child in danger? Are you confused with gender identity or searching for self-esteem? Do you or someone you love face disease or depression or death? Whatever other steps you may need to take to resolve these concerns, come first to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust in heaven's promises. In that regard, Alma's testimony is my testimony. I do know, he says, that whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions. This reliance upon the merciful nature of God is at the very center of the gospel Christ taught. I testify that the Savior's atonement lifts us not only from the burden of our sins, but also the burden of our disappointments and sorrows, our heartaches, and our despair. From the beginning, trust in such help was to give us both a reason and a way to improve, an incentive to lay down our burdens and take up our salvation. There can and will be plenty of difficulties in life. Nevertheless, the soul that comes unto Christ, who knows His voice and strives to do as He did, finds a strength, as our hymn says, beyond our own. The Savior reminds us that He has graven us upon the palms of His hands. Considering the incomprehensible cost of the crucifixion and atonement, I promise you He is not going to turn His back on us now. When He says to the poor in spirit, Come unto Me, He means He knows the way out. And He knows the way up. He knows it because He's walked it. He knows the way because He is the way. Brothers and sisters, whatever your distress, please don't give up and please don't yield to fear. I have always been touched that as His son was departing for his mission to England, Brother Bryant S. Hinckley gave young Gordon a farewell embrace and then slipped him a handwritten note with just five words taken from the fifth chapter of Mark. Be not afraid, it said, only believe. I think also of that night when Christ rushed to the aid of His frightened disciples, walking as He did on the water to get to them, calling out, It is I, be not afraid. 
Peter exclaimed, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Christ's answer to him was as it always is every time. Come, he said. Instantly, as was his nature, Peter sprang over the vessel's side and into the troubled waters. While his eyes were fixed upon the Lord, the wind could toss his hair and the spray could drench his robes, but all was well. He was coming to Christ. It was only when his faith wavered and fear took control, only when he removed his glance from the Master to look at the furious waves and the ominous black gulf beneath, only then did he begin to sink into the sea. In newer terror, he now cried out, Lord, save me. Undoubtedly, with some sadness, the master over every problem and fear, he who is the solution to every discouragement and disappointment, stretched out his hand and grasped the drowning disciple with the gentle rebuke, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? If you are lonely, please know you can find comfort. If you are discouraged, please know you can find hope. If you are poor in spirit, please know you can be strengthened. If you feel you are broken, please know you can be mended. In Nazareth, the narrow road that tires the feet and steals the breath, passes the place where once abode the carpenter of Nazareth. And up and down the dusty way the village folk would often wend, and on the bench beside him lay their broken things for him to mend. The maiden with the doll she broke, the woman with the broken chair, the man with broken plow or yoke said, Can you mend it, carpenter? And each received the thing he sought in yoke or plow or chair or doll, the broken thing which each had brought returned again a perfect whole. So up the hill, the long years through, with heavy step and wistful eye, the burdened souls their way pursue, uttering each the plaintive cry, O carpenter of Nazareth, this heart that's broken past repair, this life that's shattered nigh to death, O can you mend them, carpenter? And by his kind and ready hand, his own sweet life is woven through our broken lives until they stand a new creation, all things new. The shattered substance of the heart, desire, ambition, hope, and faith, mold thou into the perfect part, O carpenter of Nazareth. May we all, especially the poor in spirit, come unto him and be made whole, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen.
as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we care about all of God's children who now live or who have ever lived upon the earth. Our message, as stated by the First Presidency in 1978, is, quote, one of special love and concern for the eternal welfare of all men and women, regardless of religious belief, race, or nationality, knowing that we are truly brothers and sisters because we are the sons and daughters of the same eternal Father." Close quote. As Elder Dallin H. Oaks stated a few years ago, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has many beliefs in common with other Christian churches, but we have differences, and those differences explain why we send missionaries to other Christians, why we build temples in addition to churches, and why our beliefs bring us such happiness and strength to deal with the challenges of life and death." Close quote. I wish to testify today of the fullness of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, which adds to the religious beliefs of other denominations, both Christian and non-Christian. This fullness was originally established by the Savior in His earthly minister. But then there was a falling away. Some of the early apostles knew that an apostasy would occur before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Thessalonians, Paul wrote concerning this event, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. With this falling away, priesthood keys were lost, and some precious doctrines of the Church organized by the Savior were changed. Among these were baptism by immersion, receiving the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, the nature of the Godhead, that there are three distinct personages. All mankind will be resurrected through the Atonement of Christ, both the just and the unjust, continuous revelation that the heavens are not closed, and temple work for the living and the dead. The period that followed came to be known as the Dark Ages. This falling away was foreseen by the Apostle Peter, who declared that heaven must receive Jesus Christ until the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Restitution would only be necessary if those precious things had been lost. In the centuries that followed, religious men came to recognize that there had been a gradual falling away from the Church organized by Jesus Christ. Some of them suffered greatly for their beliefs in what came to be called the Reformation, a 16th-century movement that aimed at reforming Western Christianity. This resulted in the separation of the Protestant churches from the main Christian church. Among these reformers was the Reverend John Lathrop, vicar of the Egerton Church in Kent, England. Incidentally, the Prophet Joseph Smith was descendant from John Lathrop. 
1623, the Reverend Lafer resigned his position because he questioned the authority of the Anglican Church to act in the name of God. As he read the Bible, he recognized that apostolic keys were not on the earth. In 1632, he became a minister of an illegal independent church and was put in prison. His wife died while he was in prison, and his orphaned children pleaded with the bishop for his release. The bishop agreed to release Lather upon condition that he leave the country. This he did, and with 32 members of his congregation, he sailed to America. Roger Williams, a 17th-century pastor who founded Rhode Island, refused to continue as pastor in Providence on the ground that there was, quote, no regularly constituted church on the earth, nor any person authorized to administer any church ordinance, nor could there be until new apostles are sent by the great head of the church for whose coming he is seeking. These are but two religious scholars who recognized an apostasy from the Church organized by Jesus Christ and the need for a restoration of the priesthood keys that had been lost. The Apostle John saw in vision a time when another angel would fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. This prophecy has been fulfilled because we believe the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored in our time by the Prophet Joseph Smith. We wish to give all people an opportunity to know and accept this message. We now have in the restored Church apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists as spoken of by Paul to the Ephesians. These priesthood officers were established by the Savior when he organized his church in the meridian of time. We recognize the two orders of the priesthood and the offices contained in them. The lesser priesthood is the Aaronic priesthood, named after Aaron, and the greater priesthood is the Melchizedek priesthood, named after Melchizedek, to whom Abraham paid tithes. The Aaronic Priesthood was restored May 15, 1829, under the hands of John the Baptist, and the Melchizedek Priesthood within a month under the hands of the ancient apostles Peter, James, and John, two, Joseph Smith, and Oliver Cowdery. Thus, those possessing the priesthood today claim the power to act in the name of God through the priesthood, which power commands respect both on earth and in heaven. In the Kirtland Temple on April 3, 1836, Moses appeared and gave the Prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery the keys of the gathering of Israel. After this, Elias appeared and committed the gospel of Abraham, that in, quote, our seed and all generations after us shall be blessed. After this, Elijah the Prophet appeared and gave them the keys of this dispensation including the sealing power to bind in heaven that which is bound on earth within the temples. Thus, 
prophets of the previous gospel dispensation presented their keys to the prophet Joseph Smith in this, the final dispensation of the fullness of times, spoken of by Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians. I am grateful that the Lord has seen fit to establish again the law of tithes and offerings for this people. By keeping the law of tithing, the windows of heaven are open for us. Great are the blessings poured down upon those who have the faith to keep the law of tithing. Through the Earth's long history, temple worship has been a significant part of the saints' worship by which they show their desire to come closer to their Creator. The temple was a place of learning for the Savior when He was on the earth. It was very much a part of His life. Temple blessings are again available in our day. A unique feature of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is its teachings concerning temples and the eternal significance of all that occurs within them. Our majestic and beautiful temples now dot much of the earth. In them the most sacred work is done. President Gordon B. Hinckley has stated in these temples, There are only a few places on the earth where man's questions about life receive the answers of eternity. The solemn mysteries of where we came from, why we are here, and where we are going are answered more fully in the temples. We came from God's presence and are here on earth to prepare to return to His presence. Of transcendent significance is that within the sacred walls of the temple, husbands and wives make eternal covenants. These covenants are sealed by priesthood authority. Children of that union, if they are worthy, may enjoy an eternal relationship as part of a family and as children of God. As the Apostle John said, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him by night and day in His temple? The Lord has said that His work is to bring to pass Him the immortality and eternal life of man. It follows, then, that all mankind, living and dead, should have the opportunity of hearing the gospel either in this life or in the spirit world. As Paul said to the Corinthians, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? This is the reason we do ordinance work in temples for our deceased ancestors. No person's choice or agency is taken away. Those for whom the work is done may accept it or not as they choose. The Apostle John saw in vision the time when an angel would come to earth as part of the restoration of the gospel. That angel was Moroni, who appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith. He directed Joseph to place to the place where the golden plates containing ancient writings were deposited. Joseph Smith then translated these plates by the gift and power of God, and the Book of Mormon was published. This is a record of two groups of people who lived centuries ago on the American continent. 
Little was known about them before the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. But more importantly, the Book of Mormon is another testament of Christ. It's restored precious truths concerning the fall, the atonement, the resurrection, and life after death. Prior to the restorations, the heavens had been closed for centuries. But with the prophets and apostles upon the earth once more, the heavens were opened once again with visions and revelations. Many of the revelations that came to the prophet Joseph Smith were written down in a book that came to be known as the Doctrine and Covenants. This contains further insights about principles and ordinances and is a valuable source concerning the structure of the priesthood. In addition, we have another canon of scripture called the Pearl of Great Price. It contains the Book of Moses, which came by revelation to the prophet Joseph Smith, and the Book of Abram, which he translated from a purchased Egyptian scroll. From these, we learn not only a great deal more about Moses, Abraham, Enoch, and other prophets, but also many more details about the creation. We learn that the gospel of Jesus Christ was taught to all of the prophets from the beginning, even from the time of Adam. We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. It is not a break-off from any other Church. We believe that the fullness of the gospel of Christ has been restored. But this is no reason for anyone to feel superior in any way towards others of God's children. Rather, it requires a greater obligation to invoke the essence of the gospel of Christ in our lives to love, serve, and bless others. Indeed, as the First Presidency stated in 1978, we believe that the great religious leaders of the world, such as Mohammed, Confucius, and the Reformers, as well as the philosophers, including Socrates and Plato, and the others, received a portion of God's light. Moral truths were given to them by God to enlighten whole nations and to bring a higher level of understanding to individuals." Close quote. Thus, we have respect for the sincere religious beliefs of others and appreciate others extending the same courtesy and respect for the tenets that we hold dear. I have a personal witness of the truth of the covenants, teachings, and authority restored through the Prophet Joseph Smith. This assurance has been with me all of my life. I am grateful that the restoration of the fullness of gospel has taken place in our time. It contains the pathway to eternal life. May the strength, peace, and concern of God the Father and the abiding love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Brother Monson's a very difficult man to follow. <laughs> He's full of humor and yet great sincerity. Thank you, my brethren, for your faith and prayers. I deeply appreciate them. When a man grows old, he develops a softer touch, a kindlier manner. I have thought much of this of late. I have wondered why there is so much hatred in the world. We are involved in terrible wars with lives lost and many crippling wounds. Coming closer to home, there is so much of jealousy, pride, arrogance, and carping criticism. Fathers who rise in anger over small, inconsequential things and make wives weep and children fear. Racial strife still lives its, cuffly, its ugly head. I am advised that even right here among us there is some of this. I cannot understand how it can be. It seemed to me that we all rejoiced in the 1978 revelation given President Kimball. I was there in the temple at the time that that happened. There was no doubt in my mind or in the minds of my associates that what was revealed was the mind and the will of the Lord. Now I am told that racial slurs and denigrating remarks are sometimes heard among us. I remind you that no man who makes disparaging remarks concerning those of another race can consider himself a true disciple of Christ, nor can he consider himself to be in harmony with the teachings of the Church of Christ. How can any man holding the Melchizedek priesthood arrogantly assume that he is eligible for the priesthood, whereas another who lives a righteous life but whose skin is of a different color is ineligible? Throughout my service as a member of the First Presidency, I have recognized and spoke a number of times on the diversity we see in our society. It is all about us, and we must make an effort to accommodate that diversity. Let us all recognize that each of us is a son or daughter of our Father in Heaven who loves all of His children. Brethren, there is no basis for racial hatred among the priesthood of this Church. If any within the sound of my voice is inclined to indulge in this, then let him go before the Lord and ask for forgiveness and be no more involved in such. I receive letters from time to time suggesting items that the writers feel should be dealt with at conference. One such came the other day. It is from a woman who indicates that her first marriage ended in divorce. She then met a man who seemed to be a very kind and considerate individual. However, she soon discovered after marriage that his finances were in disarray. He had little money, and he quit his job and refused employment. 
She was then forced to go to work to provide for the family. Years have passed, and he still is unemployed. She then speaks of two other men who are following the same pattern, refusing to work while their wives are compelled to spend long hours providing for their households. Said Paul to Timothy, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Those are very strong words. The Lord has said in modern revelation, women have claim on their husbands for their maintenance until their husbands are taken. All children have claim upon their parents for their maintenance until they are of age. From the early days of this Church, husbands have been considered the breadwinners of the family. I believe that no man can be considered a member in good standing who refuses to work to support his family if he is physically able to do so. Now, I indicated earlier that I did not know why there was so much conflict and hatred and bitterness in the world. Of course I know that all of this is the work of the adversary. He works on us as individuals. He destroys strong men. From the time of the organization of this Church, he has done so. President Wilford Woodruff said this, I have seen all over Cowdery when it seemed as though the earth trembled under his feet. I never heard a man bear a stronger testimony than he did when under the influence of the Spirit. But the moment that he left the kingdom of God, that moment his power fell. He was shorn of his strength like Samson in the lap of Delilah. He lost the power and testimony which he had enjoyed, and he never recovered it again in its fullness while in the flesh, although he died a member of the Church. I have permission to tell you the story of a young man who grew up in our community. He was not a member of the Church. He and his parents were active in another faith. He says that when he was growing up, some of his LDS associates belittled him, made him feel out of place, and poked fun at him. He came to literally hate this Church and its people. He saw no good in any of them. Then his father lost his employment and had to move. In the new location, at the age of 17, he was able to enroll in college. There, for the first time in his life, he felt the warmth of friends, one of whom named Richard asked him to join a club of which he was president. He says, For the first time in my life, someone wanted me around. I didn't know how to react, but thankfully I joined. It was a feeling that I loved, the feeling of having a friend. I had prayed for one my whole life, and now, after 17 years of waiting, God answered that prayer. At the age of 19, he found himself as a tent partner 
with Richard during their summer employment. He noticed Richard reading a book every night. He asked what he was reading. He was told that he was reading the Book of Mormon. He says, I quickly changed the subject and went to bed. After all, that is the book that ruined my childhood. I tried forgetting about it, but a week went by and I couldn't sleep. Why was he reading it every night? I soon couldn't stand the unanswered questions in my mind. So one night I asked him what was so important in that book. What was in it? He handed me the book. I quickly stated that I never wanted to touch the book. I just wanted to know what was in it. He started to read where he'd stopped. He read about Jesus and about an appearance in the Americas. I was shocked. I didn't think that the Mormons believed in Jesus. Richard asked him to sing in a state conference with him. The day came and the conference started. Elder Gary Coleman from the first quorum of the 70 was the guest speaker. I found out during the conference that he was also a convert. At the end, Richard proceeded to pull me by the arm up to talk to him. I finally agreed, and as I was approaching him, he turned and smiled at me. I introduced myself and said that I wasn't a member and that I had just come to sing in the choir. He smiled and said he was happy that I was there and stated that the music was great. I asked him how he knew the Church was true. He told me a short version of his testimony and asked if I had read the Book of Mormon. I said no. He promised me that the first time I read it, I would feel the Spirit. On a subsequent occasion, this young man and his friend were traveling. Richard handed him a Book of Mormon and asked that he read it aloud. He did so, and suddenly the inspiration of the Holy Spirit touched him. Time passed, and his faith increased. He agreed to be baptized. His parents opposed him, but he went forward and was baptized a member of this Church. His, his testimony continues to strengthen. Now, only a few weeks ago, he was married to a beautiful Latter-day Saint girl for time and eternity in the Salt Lake Temple. Elder Gary Coleman performed his sealing. That is the end of the story, but there are great statements in that story. One is the sorry manner in which his young Mormon friends treated him. Next is the manner in which his newfound friend Richard treated him. It was totally opposite from his previous experience. It led to his conversion and baptism in the face of terrible odds. This kind of miracle can happen and will happen when there is kindness, respect, and love. Why do any of us have to be so mean and unkind to others? Why can't all of us reach out in friendship to everyone about us? Why is there so much bitterness and animosity? It is not a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all stumble occasionally. We all make mistakes.
I paraphrase the words of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. William W. Phelps, who was close to the prophet Joseph, betrayed him in 1838, which led to his incarceration in Missouri. Recognizing the grave evil of the thing he had done, he wrote to the prophet asking forgiveness. The prophet replied in part as follows. It is true that we have suffered much in consequence of your behavior. The cup of gall, already full enough for mortals to drink, was indeed filled to overflowing when you turned against us. However, the cup has been drunk, the will of our Father has been done, and we are yet alive for which we thank the Lord. Believing your confession to be real and your repentance genuine, I shall be happy once again to give you the right hand of fellowship and rejoice over the returning prodigal. Your letter was read to the saints last Sunday, and expression of their feeling was taken when it was unanimously resolved that W. W. Phelps should be received into fellowship. Come on, dear brother, since the war is past, for friends at first are friends at last. Brethren, it is in this spirit expressed by the prophet which we must cultivate in our lives. We cannot be complacent about it. We are members of the Church of our Lord. We have an obligation to Him as well as to ourselves and others. This sinful old world so much needs men of strength, men of virtue, men of faith and righteousness, men willing to forgive and forget. Now, in concluding, I am pleased to note that the examples and stories I have given do not represent the actions and attitude of the great majority of our people. I see all around me a marvelous outpouring of love and concern for others. A week ago, this hall was filled with beautiful young women who are striving to live the gospel. They are generous toward one another. They strength, seek to strengthen one another. They are a credit to their parents and the homes from which they come. They are approaching womanhood and will carry throughout their lives the ideals which presently motivate them. Think of the vast good done by the women of the Relief Society. The shadow of their benevolent activities extends all across the world. Women reach down and give of their time, their loving care, and their resources to assist the sick and the poor. Think of the welfare program, with volunteers reaching out to supply food, clothing, and other needed items to those in distress. Think of the far reaches of our humanitarian efforts in going beyond the membership of the Church to the poverty-ridden nations of the earth. The scourge of measles is being eradicated in many areas through the contributions of this Church. 
Observe the workings of the Perpetual Education Fund in lifting thousands out of the slew of poverty into the sunlight of knowledge and prosperity. And thus I might go on reminding you of the vast efforts of the good people of this Church in blessing the lives of one another and with an outreach that extends across the world to the poor and distressed of the earth. There is no end to the good we can do, to the influence we can have with others. Let us not dwell on the critical or the negative. Let us pray for strength. Let us pray for capacity and desire to assist others. Let us radiate the light of the gospel at all times and in all places, that the Spirit of the Redeemer may radiate from us. In the words of the Lord to Joshua, Brethren, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God will be with thee whithersoever thou goest. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Some years ago, as our youngest son Clark was approaching his 12th birthday, he and I were leaving the Church Administration Building when President Harold B. Lee approached and greeted us. I mentioned to President Lee that Clark would soon be 12, whereupon President Lee turned to him and asked, What happens to you when you turn 12? This was one of those times when a father prays that a son will be inspired to give the proper response. Clark, without hesitation, said to President Lee, I will be ordained a deacon. The answer was the one for which I had prayed and which President Lee had sought. He then counseled our son, Remember, it is a great blessing to hold the priesthood. I hope with all my heart and soul that every young man who receives the priesthood will honor that priesthood and be true to the trust which is conveyed when it is conferred. May each of us who holds the priesthood of God know what he believes. As the Apostle Peter admonished, may we ever be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you. There will be occasions in each of our lives when we will be called upon to explain or to defend our beliefs. When the time for performance arrives, the time for preparation is past. Most of you young men will have the opportunity to share your testimonies when you serve as missionaries throughout the world. Prepare now for that wonderful privilege. I have experienced many opportunities. One occurred 21 years ago, prior to the time when the German Democratic Republic, or East Germany as it was more commonly known, was freed from Communist rule. I was visiting with the East German State Secretary, Minister Gysi. At that time, our temple at Freiburg in East Germany was under construction, along with two or three meeting houses.
Minister Giese and I visited on a number of subjects, including our worldwide building program. He then asked, Why is your church so wealthy that you can afford to build buildings in our country throughout the world? How do you get your money? I answered that the Church is not wealthy, but that we follow the ancient biblical principle of tithing, which principle is re-emphasized in our modern scripture. I explained also that our Church has no paid ministry and indicated that these were two reasons why we are able to build the buildings then underway, including the beautiful temple at Freiburg. Minister Giese was most impressed with the information I presented, and I was very grateful I was able to answer his questions. Are you ready, brethren? They will come to you. The opportunity to declare a truth may come when we least expect it. Let us be prepared. On one occasion, President David O. McKay was asked by a man, not a member of the Church, what specific belief set apart the teachings of the Church from those of any other faith. In speaking of this later, President McKay indicated that he had felt impressed to answer that which differentiates the beliefs of my Church from those of others is divine authority by direct revelation. Where could we find a more significant example of divine authority by direct revelation than in the events which occurred that beautiful clear day early in the spring of 1820 when the lad Joseph Smith retired to the woods to pray. His words describing that moment in history are overpowering. I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Our thoughts turn to the visit of that heavenly messenger, John the Baptist, on May 15, 1829. There on the bank of the Susquehanna River near Harmony, Pennsylvania, John laid his hands upon Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and ordained them, saying, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. The messenger announced, that he acted under the direction of Peter, James, and John, who held the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood. Ordination and baptism followed. This is yet another example of divine authority by direct revelation. In due time, Peter, James, and John were sent to bestow the blessings of the Melchizedek priesthood. These apostles, sent by the Lord, ordained and confirmed Joseph and Oliver to be apostles and special witnesses 
of His name, divine authority by direct revelation, characterized this sacred visitation. As a result of these experiences, all of us carry the requirement, even the blessed opportunity and solemn duty, to be true to the trust we have received. President Brigham Young declared, The priesthood of the Son of God is the law by which the worlds are, were, and will continue forever and ever. President Joseph F. Smith, expanding on this theme, advised, It is nothing more nor less than the power of God delegated to man by which man can act in the earth for the salvation of the human family. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and act legitimately, not assuming that authority, not borrowing it from generations that are dead and gone, but authority that has been given in this day in which we live by ministering angels and spirits from above, direct from the presence of Almighty God. Let me interject here for a moment an experience I had with regard to the authority of the Aaronic priesthood. When I was 17 and almost 18, time for me to enter military service, I was to be ordained an elder, and I went to my stake president for an interview. We feared that interview. Our stake president, Paul C. Child, was a scriptorian. He had just one problem. He felt that every young man should also be a scriptorian. And when I telephoned him to make an appointment for an interview, he said, What time may you come? And I said, Well, I thought ahead of time when his sacrament meeting began, and I didn't want too long of a time with him. I said, How about three o'clock, present child? He said, Oh, no, that would not give us time to pursue the scriptures. Could you come? at one o'clock in the afternoon and bring your personal set of scriptures with you. My, what a challenge. <laughs> I prayed before I went, and when I arrived, the room was quiet, like a city library, where the clock goes by and you can hear every tick, tick, tick. And then he asked to see my scriptures. I handed the triple combination to him, and he looked at it. Well read, well read. And I could have said, well perused, <laughs> well perused. And then he said, you hold the erotic priesthood. You know, I knew that. And then he said this. Have you ever had an angel minister to you, Brother Monson? I said, I'm not sure. And then he said quickly, Recite from memory the 13th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of the Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys to the ministering of angels. Stop, he said. Never again forget 
that through the Aaronic priesthood you hold, it is the key of the ministering of angels. Continued the passage, and I did, Gospel of Repentance and Baptism by Immersion for the Remission of Sins. He said, Splendid, splendid. And then he took me through about five other sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. He liked the 20th section. He liked the fourth on missionary work, 20th on government, and then my favorite and his, and I knew that ahead of time, the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Oh, that's a beautiful scripture. And I had that one by memory. And then he took me into the 84th section and the 88th section and the 107th section. It was a long interview. And then he said, you passed. <laughs> and you will now be ordained an elder. What a beautiful saying. What a beautiful thought to remember. And he gave me a nice smile, put his arm around me, and said, Remember, the Lord blesses the person who serves him. That same man, later in life, became a mission president, adjacent to the very mission where I was a mission president. And we had a wonderful, wonderful association. One time when I went to a state conference, he was the welfare representative, and it was his turn to speak. And he winked at me, and then he took his scriptures. He went down in the audience. I knew what he was going to do. No one else did. And he quoted from the early sections of the Doctrine and Covenants concerning the worth of a soul, indicating that if we should labor all our days and bring a soul unto him, how great would be our joy with that soul in the kingdom of our Father. And if we should labor diligently and bring many souls unto him, how much greater would be our joy. And then like a cat springing on a mouse, he said, You, President of the Third Quorum of Elders, stand and tell me what is the worth of a human soul. That happened to be the Elders Quorum President in our ward. He had no more idea than fly how to answer that question. He just sat there, sat there and said, Me? You. I don't know if you ever saw that uh, show Music Man, where Professor Harold Hill taught music by the Think System. I tried it. I looked at that dear brother who had before been my, and later my elders corps and president, and I said to myself, don't let him get you. Don't let him get you. Heavenly Father, help him. And that man rose above his own intelligence. And he said, Brother Child, the worth of a soul is its capacity to become as God. Brother Child closed his scripture, walked solemnly, quietly up the aisle. He passed by me and said, A solemn reply. A solemn reply. And I almost said, the think system works. <laughs> but I didn't. 
Well, we had to know the oath and covenant of the priesthood because it pertains to all of us. To those who hold the Melchizedek priesthood, it is a declaration of our requirement to be faithful and obedient to the laws of God and to magnify the callings which come to us. To those who hold the Aaronic priesthood, it is a pronouncement concerning future duty and responsibility that they may prepare themselves here and now. This oath and covenant is set forth by the Lord in these words, For whoso is faithful unto the obtaining these two priesthoods of which I have spoken, and the magnifying of their calling, are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies. They become the sons of Moses and of Aaron and the seed of Abraham and the Church and Kingdom and the elect of God. And also they who receive this priesthood receive me, saith the Lord. For he that receiveth my servants receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth my Father, and he that receiveth my Father receiveth my Father's kingdom. Therefore all that my Father hath shall be given unto him. The late Elder Delbert L. Stapley of the Quorum of the Twelve once observed, There are two main requirements of this oath and covenant. First is faithfulness, which denotes obedience to the laws of God and connotes true observance of all gospel standards. The second requirement is to magnify one's calling. To magnify is to honor, to exalt, and glorify, and cause to be held in greater esteem or respect. It also means to increase the importance of, to enlarge and make greater. The Prophet Joseph Smith was once asked, Brother Joseph, you frequently urge that we magnify our callings. What does this mean? He is said to have replied, To magnify a calling is to hold it up in dignity and importance, that the light of heaven may shine through one's performance to the gaze of other men. An elder magnifies his calling when he learns what his duties as an elder are and then performs them. Those who bear the Aaronic priesthood should be given opportunity to magnify their callings in that priesthood. One Sunday, almost a year ago, I was attending sacrament meeting in my ward. That's a rarity. There were three priests at the sacrament table, with a young man in the center being somewhat handicapped in movement, but particularly so in speech. He tried twice to bless the bread, but stumbled badly each time, no doubt embarrassed by his inability to give the prayer perfectly. One of the other priests then took over and gave the blessing on the bread. During the passing of the bread, I thought to myself, I just can't let that young man experience failure at the sacrament table. 
I had a strong feeling that if I did not doubt, he would be able to bless the water effectively. Inasmuch as I was on the stand near the sacrament table, I leaned over and said to the priest closest to me, pointing to the young man who had experienced the difficulty, Let him bless the water. It's a shorter prayer. And then I prayed. I didn't want a double failure. But I love that passage concerning doubt. We should not doubt, but believe. When it was time to bless the water, that young man knelt again and gave the prayer, perhaps somewhat haltingly, but without missing a word. I rejoiced silently. While the deacons were passing the trays, I looked over at the boy and gave him a thumbs up. He gave me a broad smile. When the young men were excused to sit with their families, he went back and sat on the row between his mother and father. What a joy it was to see his mother give him a big smile and a warm hug while his father congratulated him and put his arm around his shoulder. All three of them looked in my direction, and I gave them all two thumbs up. <laughs> I could see the mother and father wiping tears from their eyes. I felt impressed. This young man would do just fine in the future. The priesthood is not really so much a gift as it is a commission to serve, a privilege to lift, and an opportunity to bless the lives of others. Not long ago, I received a letter concerning a choice young deacon, Isaac Ryder, and the deacon's teachers and priests who served, lifted, and blessed his life and their own lives. Isaac fought cancer from the time he was seven months old until his death at age 13, when he and his family moved to a home near a hospital so that Isaac could receive proper medical attention. The ironic priesthood members in the nearby ward were asked to provide the sacrament to them. Each Sunday, this weekly ordinance became a favorite of the ironic priesthood holders who participated. Along with their leaders and Isaac's family, they would gather around Isaac's hospital bed, sing hymns, and share testimonies. Then the sacrament would be blessed. Isaac always insisted that as a deacon, he pass the sacrament to his family and to those who had brought it. As he lay in his bed, he gathered the strength to hold a plate of either the blessed bread or water. All present would come to Isaac and partake of the sacrament from the plate. Nurses and other medical staff soon began to participate in the meeting as they realized that Isaac was close to his Heavenly Father and always honored him. Though weak and in pain, Isaac always held himself with the honor of someone holding a royal priesthood. Isaac was a great example 
to the young men in the ward. They saw his desire to fulfill his duties, even on his deathbed, and they realized that those duties were really privileges. They began showing up earlier in order to prepare the sacrament and to be in their seats on time. There was more reverence. Isaac Ryder became a living sermon concerning honoring the priesthood. At his funeral, it was said that throughout his life he had one foot in heaven. No doubt he continues to magnify his duties and assist in the work beyond the veil. For those of us who hold the Melchizedek priesthood, our privilege to magnify our callings is ever-present. We are shepherds watching over Israel. The hungry sheep do look up, ready to be fed the bread of life. Are we prepared, brethren, to feed the flock of God? It is imperative that we recognize the worth of a human soul, that we never give up on one of His precious sons. Should there be anyone who feels he is too weak to do better because that greatest of fears, the fear of failure, there is no more comforting assurance to be had than the words of the Lord, My grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Miracles are everywhere to be found when priesthood callings are magnified, when faith replaces doubt, when selfless service eliminates selfish striving, the power of God brings to pass His purposes. For whom God calls, God qualifies. May our Heavenly Father ever bless and ever inspire and ever lead all who hold His precious priesthood is my sincere prayer, and I offer it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.